had a choice to develop a medical device that would save the life of your parent or save the life of your kid, who would you pick? Everyone uniformly chooses their kid. However, as a society, it doesn't always work that way. In fact, it rarely works that way. Welcome to another episode of MedTech Mindset. I'm your host, Dan Henrich, and I'm Director of Marketing at SmithWise. We have a great topic on today's episode, pediatric device innovation. My guest is Matthew Maltese. He's Chief Innovation Officer at XBiomedical, a MedTech startup, and he's co-founder and Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Pediatric Medical Device Consortium. He sat down with me recently to discuss why bringing new devices to market for kids can be so difficult and what clinicians, industry members, parents, investors, and the FDA are doing to change that. Let's get right to it. Hey, Matt. Hey. <laughs> Thanks so much for, uh, for being our guest today. I'm really glad to, to have the opportunity to talk with you about pediatric devices and, um, and you know, how we bring devices to market for, for small patient populations. Can you um, just... Tell our listeners a little bit about why is it so difficult sometimes to bring pediatric devices to market and why are they different from uh, devices for adults? The challenge with pediatrics is um, it, there are technical challenges associated with it, uh, typically, you know, the growth of a child throughout the um, the use, pretended use of a device can be challenging, particularly for implantable devices. You can imagine a heart valve, mm-hmm. for example. Um, there's a, a, a wonderful unmet need potential for anyone who can develop a heart valve that will grow mm-hmm. with, uh, with the aorta or the other great vessel that uh, the valve needs to go in. There are those technical challenges. Um, but then there are simply... Um, uh, financial challenges. Uh, you know, it's um, it's. I, I've I've given talks um, around the country on medical devices and kids, and I will often ask the audience. I'll ask them, "How many of you have parents?" And everybody puts their hand up. Right? Everybody's got a mom or a dad, or a mom and a dad. And then I ask, how many of you have, have children? And a smaller subset of the group will put their hands up. And I said, then I ask, okay, for everyone who has both parents and a child or children, if you had a choice to develop a medical device or other therapy or pharmaceutical that would save the life of your parent or save the life of your kid, who would you pick? Uniformly. Of course, yeah. Who would they pick? Dan? I'd pick my kid. You picked your kid. Everybody picks. Sorry, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) Your dad would pick your kid too. Yeah. And um, everyone uniformly chooses their kid. However, as a society, it doesn't always work that way. In fact, it rarely works that way. We know that it's the the marketplace for adult products, particularly. You, know, you take orthopedic products for the hip and the knee and elsewhere. Um, there's uh, there's so much volume there, so many um, 
so many cases and so many devices to be sold that that's where much of the attention goes. And so it can be just very difficult to draw attention to the kids because the populations, as you put in your opening remarks, um, are small, meaning there are few in the population, mm-hmm. in, addi- in addition to the individuals in the population being small, physically small, that there are few in the population. And so the um, there can be challenges because the upside from a capitalistic perspective is not as big. Mm-hmm. However, there's still an upside. I think that there's still an upside in most devices for kids. Mm-hmm. So are there... Um are there, you know, VC firms or angel investors who specialize then in, in, you know, small patient population or or pediatric devices? There are, um, there are some firms that uh, that have, um, I guess, identified that that this is something that they are interested in. More often than not, it's individuals. Mm-hmm. And if we think about, you mentioned VC, so if we think about the stages of investing, right, the, the early round, the seed round, um, where individuals are involved uh, who have enough financial resource to get something off the ground and enough business sense to identify a, a business opportunity, um, that's where you're most likely to find traditional investment um, a willingness for traditional investors to get involved. Venture capitalists, in the in the strictest term, are often spending somebody else's money, mm-hmm. right? And so they can't really allow by just by their duty, they can't mm-hmm. allow these emotional matters to um, to come into play unless it's part of their stated mission, right? right mm-hmm. Of their of their fund. Um, just as an aside, you know, I've, I've been working in this field for quite some time, and I'm, I'm impressed to find many, many individuals uh, who have the means to invest and have some sort of connection to pediatrics. You know, maybe a child who was a pediatric patient or a, um, a, a sibling or a, a, uh, or a child who, uh, who is a pediatric medical provider uh, of some sort and they are touched personally by this and therefore are willing to uh, invest mm-hmm. in some way mm-hmm. so um, given then the 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 fact that there are many fewer options uh, for for you know a pediatric specialist um, when it comes to treating you know treating their patients what do uh, what does a pediatric cardiologist or or surgeon or you know anesthesiologist how does he or she you know navigate that in terms of treating their patients <laughs> with the devices available? So I I once asked uh, I wanted to find out in my own hospital the the off label use of medical devices. Of course, off off label means it's outside the range of the approved of the FDA approved range. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for the device um, to be marketed, and the the uniform response was, it's easier for me to make a easier for my clinician colleagues at the time to make a list of the devices that are used on label. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that that was the response uh, almost uniformly, and so that's how they do it. They they patch, they cut, they modify, 
um, when the pediatric-specific device is not available. That said, that there are examples of pediatric devices coming to market, even now, um, where manufacturers um, uh, who are being uh, good citizens or recognizing market potential or a little bit of both or mission-driven uh, and can make something work financially, uh, they will make uh, their products, they will modify their products for, uh, for, pediatric, for the pediatric space. So then um, pediatric specialists, many of them are, are forced to sort of become, you know, device innovators on the fly, uh, it sounds like. Um, so, our, so I understand correctly, and our audience understands correctly. You know, if you have an off-label use, um, what that means is that the the FDA has approved the device for certain um, certain types of use that are that are on the label. Yeah, the manufacturer may not market it for anything but but on-label use, but physicians can can innovate where necessary to to treat their patients using basically an unapproved use for, for a device that's on the market. Is that right? That is exactly right. So a great example is uh, cardiac stenting um, in pediatrics, where most of the uh, pediatric stents are biliary stents from the adult market used off-label. Are there, is there anything going on at the agency to try to um, make that traditional you know traditional pathway to get devices approved uh, easier or less expensive or faster that's a great question um, and I think there's a new word out there a new phrase it's called quote the new FDA mm-hmm. and it there really is a difference between the FDA of um, only you know five or ten years ago, and the FDA we see now, um, and um, I think the the things that I've observed myself and heard from others is much more collaborative, particularly at the pre sub phase. Um, much uh, much faster. I think it's been well documented that they can turn around. Um, approval evaluations much faster than they have in the past. Um, I've, uh, you know, it used to be that uh, the, the kind of the standard was to go to Europe and get CE mark and then come back to the states for mm-hmm. the FDA uh, approval for for pediatric devices specifically or for in devices in general in general and mm-hmm. just very recently I I ran into a company from uh, Norway working on a cardiac product uh, for, pe- for PEDS, incidentally, um, that was coming to the U.S. first because mm-hmm. they just viewed it as a faster pathway. So that I think that there are great reasons to be very optimistic about all medical device development uh, in the U.S. market. Um, and also, and that just extends to pediatrics. Let me just... Um, let me just extend that a little further and say that there are specific area, um, people in the FDA uh, and programs like the, the Pediatric Device Consortium Program and other programs that are really designed to foster devices for kids. And so there's even extra, extra reason to 
um, do kids first in your mm -hmm. device idea. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me a little bit about the, the consortia? I know that your director, is that right, of the Pennsylvania um, Pediatric Device Consortium? That's right. Consortium, and uh, <laughs> can you tell me about you know what those organizations are and what their mission is and sure. how they work? I, I think, I mean, I can speak for our own organization, but I think in general, the mission is to bring pediatric medical devices to market, period. Mm -hmm. That's, that is the mission. We don't, as our consortium, the, the Pennsylvania Pediatric Medical Device Consortium, we don't care where they come from. They don't have to come from the Philadelphia region, even though we're branded Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, they, they, in fact, most of our devices that we've worked on come from outside of our region. Mm -hmm. uh, we always just sought the best devices for kids and um, provided them uh, with uh, modest funding, but hopefully better in-kind resources to help them move their, their products to an, a point where they can um, get further funding and eventually make it to market. Mm -hmm. And how many um, consortia are there? There are five total uh, in the United States, including ours in Pennsylvania. What about uh, other, other initiatives at the agency? A good example, though not pediatric-specific, but I think something that will benefit pediatrics in a very big way is, is additive manufacturing, also known as 3D printing. Mm -hmm. That the FDA has put a, a tremendous amount of effort into just understanding how additive manufacturing plays into the medical device to mar market. Because much of the value propositions for pediatric or other small volume populations uh, pivots on the volume mm -hmm. and you know for example if you have to make something out of a polymer and injection molding is your um, manufacturing method uh, you know the molds alone can be tens of thousands of dollars um, the, the and depending on the size of the patient you may need you know how many different sizes, right? How many different sizes? Maybe only a handful per hospital per um, per year or per month. But you still need them. Mm -hmm. And 3D printing offers the, the great opportunity of being able to manufacture in very small lots. Uh, you could you can even envision the concept of a of a of a vending machine, if you will, that um, Produces the and sterilizes and packages a custom-sized medical device from raw materials and sits either at a centralized location close to a several regional uh, small population hospitals, or even in the hospital itself. Mm -hmm. um, so there are there are are I think tremendous opportunities in additive manufacturing. So that's just one area that the FDA is working in, and there are many others. What about all the talk around real-world evidence and how it may be able to inform uh, and and accelerate the, the device approval process for, for pediatric devices? Yeah. The, the can, you, can you explain what is real-world evidence and, and how it might be able to... Um, sure. I mean, real-world evidence is exactly what the name implies, right? It's 
evidence or data or information that is gathered from real-world experiences. And to contrast what uh, perhaps uh, what, th what that means is real-world is not ex the experimental world, like we might do on a benchtop or mm -hmm. with an animal in a, in a laboratory, or real-world is not what we might do in silico on a computer with uh, various uh, simulation packages that are available for simulating the laws of physics virtually. Real world is real world. Real patients um, uh, experiencing uh, real medical procedures with medical devices and all of the other therapies that surround it. I think what has really launched this is the electronic health record mm -hmm. and the potential for connecting devices and in, in some cases the rich information that the device um, that the device collects. You think about cardiac pacing now where um, each device uh, not only paces the heart but collects information at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and then connecting that back to the patient health record and which is then integrated into everything that that patient has experienced from a, a medical perspective throughout their course of care. That that has great promise. So um, I think it's, frankly, it's it's something that we're going to look back on and we're going to be able to define much better years from now than we can define it right now, but the potential is great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So is the, is the main um, appeal of that then that you already have these devices that um, pediatric surgeons and, and cardiologists and others are are they're designed for adults they're being used for children and if we can collect that that data on the off-label use then perhaps we can use that data in in lieu of or to, to make a, a clinical trial smaller to get an to get a, a, a an on-label use approved that's that is one example so what, what about what about actually developing new new pediatric devices then the, how how would real world evidence inform that well i think um the development of of a brand new device that um is being used in the uh, for the first time will follow the tr traditional pathway of real world evidence generation which is the clinical trial mm -hmm. right so that will that has been in place and will Always be in place. The you know the things that I talk about with talked about with regard to the electronic health record um, uh, will make presumably make those clinical trials easier or more informative or both. Okay. Um, there um, there might be a way for this um, uh, enhanced medical records to. Um, improve epidemiological understanding of disease in ways that reveals more information about unmet needs mm -hmm. and then um, spawns the development of, of, of new devices. But I, I, I remain f um, convinced that the, 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 the best way to uh, discover unmet needs is for uh, innovators to be involved in the practice of medicine, mm -hmm. and or in, or close to the practice of medicine, and that can be for a practitioner, 
practicing medicine uh, and for an innovator who's not a practitioner, being close to a practitioner who is practicing medicine and physically in the room uh, when it's happening mm -hmm. so that they can observe what's going on from a holistic perspective mm -hmm. and spending time with the patient and spending time with the payer so that they understand fully what it means, uh, what, what the unmet need is and how to intervene. So then um, could, could real-world evidence uncover uh, maybe potentially larger markets than were appreciated and, and uh, mean that the traditional pathway to, to uh, device approval is more viable for, for investors? Is that, is that kind of the, Most the thinking behind that? Most certainly. Mm -hmm. um, I think when uh, investors, or, or I should say when um, medical device innovators or even those who are working within large medical device companies who wouldn't really consider themselves innovators but maybe advocates for certain types of technology being developed within those companies can look to real-world evidence to um, help them uh, help them justify to their own management a particular direction or course that they have to take okay so what something else I wanted to ask you about is um this is a little bit of a, a, an ethical uh, okay. ethical quagmire, <clears throat> but there is a there is a, an ethical discussion going on. Um, you know, when it comes to uh, children and other other vulnerable patient populations, um, there's one side of of uh, the argument might say, really we need we need lower regulatory barriers and less scrutiny. For these devices, because there's such an unmet need that having something is better than having nothing, even if there's a, a, a greater amount of risk. Whereas on the other side, and both both sides of this argument are very understandable, I think people say, no, since we have you know children who are you know not making these decisions themselves, right? They are they are unable to appreciate the the risk. We actually need greater scrutiny, uh, you know, greater. Uh, uh, Regulatory thresholds for for safety uh, and perhaps efficacy than uh, than we do for for adult. Um. Great question. Great question. Um, maybe just a short story before I answer. That kind of shook shook me at the time. You know, it really really um, brought reality to. Um, to how I thought about my role in, in the world. When I was, uh, when I was young and starting in, in, the, in, the, in the field, I was at an FDA meeting where we were discussing medical devices and medical devices for kids, and um, the, uh, the various medical and scientific aspects of it. We were talking statistics and p-values and, mm -hmm. um, you know, the kind of thing that... that uh, makes geeks just drool at the mouth. And there was a public meeting, and a parent stood up and went to the microphone and said, I have two kids, and um, they both have the same rare genetic condition. And one of them has died. 
and the other one, who is two years younger than the one that just died, is going to die. And I, I need, to, we need to just take action. We need to do something, because their death sentence is already mm-hmm. written. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was a, I, I, I remember it very, very clearly. And that I think that stuck with a lot of people in the room, and that 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 situation that I just described, I think, has been rehearsed many times with uh, with FDA regulators who've had the 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 challenge of trying to field that sort of a um, plea from the public, a plea from a parent who's going to lose their child no matter what. Inaction means my child dies. And try to reconcile that with the, the law. It's very challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, fast forward to just a, about a year ago, I was at a conference where the the concept of patient preference was being <laughs> merged with statistics mm-hmm. of efficacy. And what what a patient defined as risky. Um, is maybe completely different than what the p-value, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a measure of statistical significance and a measure of, of can be used to determine if something is one course is more risky than another course. Um, whether whether that uh, just how to merge those things together, and in kids. Um, it's it's a bigger challenge because many of them are just simply can't talk, and then those who can talk, um, you know, re- they really may not be able to. Um, they certainly can't express themselves in a legally binding sort of way, right? You can't enter into a contract with a minor, and so the parent has to be uh, has to be in place. You know, but there is a template here for for getting patient preference from kids. So when we do an uh, a, any kind of medical study research uh, on kids it doesn't necessarily have to be medical research. We have to pass through the institutional review boards, mm-hmm. and if a kid, depending on where it's being done and how the local IRB panel has determined, uh, there's an age of assent, which is uh, a, a you know a child can't give consent, but they can give assent. Like they can't say yes, I want to participate or no I do not want to participate and then the parental consent is of course what what decides so there's a that's an evolving space as well where um, there is not it's it's clearly been determined that there is not a one-size-fits-all measure of risk Mm -hmm. it depends on the population depends on the disease it depends on the intervention that's that's proposed Mm -hmm. So that, and most importantly, it depends on the preferences of the patient as to the type of life that they want to live mm-hmm. with or without the intervention. Right, right. And I would imagine that conversation is very different depending on whether you're talking about a, a life-threatening situation or a, uh, you know, a condition which might mean paralysis or, or, or you know, some other type of very debilitating ongoing condition yes. versus something that's... Maybe not. We wouldn't call it elective in the in the uh, adult care setting, but uh, something where the consequences are, are much less significant. 
should the conversation in in more dire situations really be about you know not does not risk first versus benefit but benefit versus risk does that make sense which which of those things you know should be prioritized uh in uh in the more dire situations i guess i don't know it 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 really depends it 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 really depends and and i think there are people more qualified than i to to comment on the situation right i'm an engineer and so I'm responsible for build, for building the intervention. Yeah. I have to, you know, I always have to keep in mind the ethics of it. But um, you know, the the right pe- having the right people in the in the room when those decisions are being made, uh, the you know, the clinical care team, the parents, um, the child, the patient. Um, the, that's that's really critical. And that's that's where the decision has to be made. Taking a step back from that's at the point of care, right? Taking a step back um, to the point of approval, right? FDA approval. I think it's the same sort of template that if you, uh, you have to have a, a panel that represents the clinicians who are experts in the field, uh, you have to have somebody who understands the regulatory pieces and what the statutes of the law say, and then you have to have. The patient, and in the case of kids, the patients and their parents, a panel of them or a body of them who are collectively speaking about these critical issues of, I see what the mathematical risk is, but this is what it means to my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A quick break here to remind our listeners that MedTech Mindset is a production of SmithWise, a medical device developer helping innovators who are struggling with technical, regulatory, or manufacturing challenges. If you need help reaching your next MedTech milestone, contact us using the form on our website, smithwise.com. You've mentioned a couple times how important it is to have clinicians either innovating themselves or to be very closely, um, you know, very closely tied to the the team that is developing this product. Um, I guess I, it would be interesting for me to understand better. You know, how does a clinician who's practicing medicine full time, right? Most of them got into that for a very specific reason, and they want to uh, be, you know, whatever their hours are—not nine to five, probably. They want to be, you know, every day, um, hands-on helping helping kids and their and their families. Um, what's the model for a, a clinician innovator who maybe is using a device off-label for for years and? And you know, developing their technique and really seeing, in a way that no one else can, uh, the potential for for a pediatric device innovation. What's the what's the model that you've seen be successful for bringing that idea to, uh, you know, to to yeah. market? So I think let me just uh, take maybe walk back my earlier statement about clinician innovator. There are certainly great examples of clinician innovators, but. Uh, maybe introduce a new concept called a clinician needs finder mm-hmm. and and decouple the idea that you have to cl- the, that you have to innovate and find the need at the same time so you could very systematically as a as a clinician spend time just understanding the need and in recruiting others who may 
join you in the innovation process, the solution process downstream, but at, at the moment that you recruit them, you're in the needs finding space mm-hmm. of just trying to figure out what what is the problem. Because there are scores of devices and other you know, so-called great ideas that die downstream because the upstream unmet need was not either not there or not well defined. Mm-hmm. And so spending a long time on understanding the problem and understanding the unmet need is always warranted. So uh, you heard her here first, folks. Clinician needs finder. It's, okay. a, new, it's a new person. It's a new, uh, a new title. Okay. Um, that's, it was, the rest part of your question was, how does a clinician innovator go about innovating? Well, what's the, what's the model you've seen be successful um, in your experience? Or even maybe now I, have a, a, I want to refine my question now that you've, you've said that. Yeah. Um, you know, you've spent a lot of time working in an environment with you know, pediatric specialists who, are, who they're aware of these needs. What's the mechanism for collecting all of those needs at you know, a big research institution? Yeah. Is there, a, is there a, a method? Does it vary from institution to institution? Or is it on the clinician to, come to, to go to the you know, biomechanics research department or whatever it is and say, hey, I have this, this problem. Can you help me solve it? Or is there a mechanism for collecting those, those needs? I think that uh, for the most part, the the clinician needs finder is not um, is not a, f- a frequently observed phenomenon. It's mostly the clinician innovator mm-hmm. who hopefully starts out as a clinician needs finder and then blossoms into their innov- in, as an innovator. I've also found that clinicians are in in many cases pretty good engineers. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a little engineer inside of every clinician, and perhaps there's a little clinician inside of every engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, what I've what I've experienced may not be it's it's not it's not the rule of law. It's not how the world how the universe must work. It's just, it just seems to be how the universe has worked that I've observed, if you will. Um, I think uh, some things that I've that I've observed that are are um, that I think are positive is that there's now a a trend where cl- clinician innovator is a, is a an academic path. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like uh, uh, just to give a, a contrasting. Example at my own institution, the Master of Science in Clinical Epidemiology was a common degree, master's degree that was sought by clinicians following their uh, following med school, mm-hmm. and there's an emerging pathway of of clinical innovator, so almost like a equivalent to that, um, that is now. Gaining recognition in an academic set, in the academic setting, and I think the more that that happens, the more that the traditional um, professional promotion um, standards and pathways recognize innovation as a legitimate academic pursuit. That we're going to see a lot more clinician innovators um, just come to be. Some are starting it in med school. 
I can't imagine that mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't how think can, of a, how you could juggle those things, right? Yes, like yeah. that's like if I could think of a time when there's somebody doesn't have any spare time, it would be medical school. Right. Um, but uh, what I've learned is that there are times in medical school, particular years, that um, clinicians, clinicians in training, have time and choose to invest their time in in innovation, and then they maybe step away from it while they go through the more intense portions, and then they return back to it uh, as they move on in their career. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think, that, I think uh, as I talked about the FDA and the future being bright there, I'm also very optimistic about uh, innovation being a more intricate part of um, academic, uh, academic medicine and, and people's careers as faculty and med schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so, putting putting aside the the, the need for more uh, clinician needs finders, maybe we're going to call them not not necessarily clinician innovators, but what is the what is the path that that you have seen for a, a device to you know move from an idea that a that a clinician has or a need that a clinician has in a and an innovator has a, a potential solution to getting the funding to, to go through regulatory approval and, and get eventually matched up with a with a manufacturer or, or, or whatever yeah. that might be. Persistence on the part of the innovator. Mm-hmm. I think that's the one the one thing. Um, persistence, less brilliance, more persistence. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is just because it's fresh on the brain, uh, but I've had two instances where people I had met several years ago who, who just asked me for advice and an idea, and I I threw some significant cold water on their idea for legitimate reasons, I think, and legitimate reasons that they admitted to. Are, they're back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're back three years later, and they've... They've adjusted. They've adapted. They've re- they're still working on the same problem, but they've they've reinvented reinvented, if you will. They've they've adjusted. They've they've kept going, and that willingness to persist is, um, as I think, the biggest the biggest thing that is uh, the biggest factor. It's a good news. It's good news that people who go to to spend a lot long time in school, who recognize that a you know your final endpoint and you know final diploma granting point is many years away, um, they tend to be persistent people anyway. So mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a good cohort to be you know to be drawing from. Um, I think the uh, the second thing is of course to not. Don't be hung up on your solution, mm-hmm. because when you do that, you actually narrow the potential solutions to a problem. This is why I think uh, separating needs finding and solution generation needs to be two separate things. Because if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So if you come in thinking that I'm going to solve this problem by a new type of stent, everything that you do for this particular problem will be a stent, when it could be something else completely different. That actually solves the problem. Mm-hmm. That is part of the stenting process, but um, maybe just a completely different solution. Mm-hmm. 
This sounds like something I've read in that biodesign book you have on your desk yeah. there. <laughs> we keep it we keep it right by right by right at the hand. Yeah. Right yeah. ready. We'll have to put a link to that in uh, when we post this on our blog. I, I would, I would. Biodesign is not rocket science. It really isn't, but it's a great book and a great framework that the group at Stanford has um, has put together and it, it is it's really critical to read it and read it fully and rethink how you approach uh, medtech innovation through it. Mm-hmm. So um, let's talk about a, uh, a clinician innovator team, we'll call it, that has, uh, they've gone through the process, they've gone through the initial steps of the process by that book. They've, they have a clearly defined need statement and they have evaluated different solutions and settled on a particular pathway for, for good reason. Um, we often at Smithwise, you know, in our early interactions, we may deal with an innovator who has an idea and a patent or, a, or is, you know, working on filing their patent. And the model in their minds is, you know, get a patent, get a prototype, and then Johnson & Johnson or some other, you know, really big device manufacturer is going to buy this from me and that's going to be my exit strategy. That's almost never what we actually see. Uh, so I guess, particularly within the within the the pediatric uh, uh, realm, where there's all these other challenges as well to, to gathering funding, what advice would you give to, to to a team in that situation that has what you what you would call a very legitimate solution to a very real problem, but there's a long way to go before their device is going to be, you know, snapped up by a, by a manufacturer. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I, I agree with your assessment. Um, it often seems like the inventor have a, may have a tendency to overvalue the idea, mm-hmm. um, whereas the, um, the investor or the eventual acquirer, which one, may be one of these large device manufacturers, um, they value the proof, right? And, you know, if, if you're steeped in academia, this is, this is the kind of the equivalent in academia. If you have a theory for how a particular disease mechanism, it, you know, let's say you have a theory and you publish the theory, um, that's basically worthless. It's your idea. It's your opinion. Not prove it. And um, it's not until you take it into the laboratory or take it into the clinic or do some other empirical study to show or not show that your theory is right. A patent is like a theory. Mm-hmm. And it's not a theory about whether the thing will work. It's a theory about whether the market will accept it and buy it. It's a theory as to whether your idea will add value to someone else's life downstream. So, um, second part of your question was, well, so what? What? What advice would you perhaps have you given uh, <laughs> to you know to a team that has a really good theory and a and really good um, evidence to suggest that it's it's technically viable? Yeah. Um, they still need to 
They still need to attract investors. They still need to prove that value to to the market. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what advice would you give them? I just, I think, first of all, just recognize that, uh, as I said earlier, that the idea is just an idea. And there are several stages that you can go through to increase the value of, of your idea. And I don't mean to say value in a sense that of how much money it's worth. That's not what I mean. I mean in the sense of how how viable is your product in making a difference in a patient's life. The confidence, if you will, that X years from now your idea will blossom into something that can make a difference. And so if you have a, an idea and you built a prototype and you tried it out on a, on a bench, on a phantom or a surrogate for a human, you've proven the concept. Okay, so now you've notched up the likelihood a little bit mm-hmm. that your idea um, will, have, will have some impact on somebody's life downstream. Then you figure out your regulatory pathway and you start down the pathway. By regulatory pathway, I mean, of course, what, what is the FDA going to want mm-hmm. you to do uh, before you can be cleared to um, sell the product? And it's an animal test, let's say, or it's a, uh, a test on a human and so forth. And each one of these things is, um, is a milestone and is a, a risk reducer, if you will. Then once you have your FDA clearance, you're still not done because you have to show to the market that, or to show to the potential acquirer that there is a market for the product. So you have to go out and, in a very traditional door-to-door sort of way, sell it. Mm-hmm. Sell it. And then people who buy it may find that it has value or may they find that it doesn't have value. And the, the acquirer is looking for those initial initial indicators. Now, there are no hard and fast rules and that these as there are no hard and fast rules as to when a an acquirer will flip the switch and decide to take your device on and proliferate it across the world to benefit the lives of millions. Um, it depends on the device, it depends on the idea. Some some with some ideas and in some financial climates, something might be picked up very, very early in the in the process. In other climates or with other ideas, the acquirer is going to want more evidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the short answer is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No problem. That's reality. Well, depends. I think that's, uh, that's uh, you know, a fitting, a fitting piece of advice in, the, in this environment. Uh, if it were easy, it would be done by now. Um, Thank you, Dan. Thank you for focusing on pediatrics. Um, it is who is most important to us. And so I'm glad that you and Smithwise are making this part of, uh, part of who you are. That's our show. If you liked it or if you didn't, please let us know by sending an email to marketing at smithwise.com or using the contact us form on our website. MedTech Mindset is produced by Smithwise in our Philadelphia office. Our theme music is composed, performed, and personally curated by the Polish Ambassador. Thanks to Matt for being our guest, 
And thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time on MedTech Mindset.